Well, Pat, we're back for yet another episode of Talking Thrones, Season 6, Episode 6, Blood of My Blood. This is doing another weird thing that last season did where it's kind of splitting up a majority of the storylines between two episodes. We do not get a lot of major primary storylines in this episode, but what we get, surprisingly better than I remember. I don't know. What's your thoughts before we get started? Hey, listen, Dom. I think you and the Talking TV family that's Talking Thrones with us will agree that this is the subplots of my plots episode right we're gonna get a lot of side characters and we're gonna see uh you know how things develop for going forward 100 all of that and more on today's episode of talking thrones You know, Pat, it's so interesting kind of this point where we're at in our Game of Thrones run. Like I said, we're into this. Officially, it's crazy. We're starting the second half of Season 6 right now. We're that much closer to Battle of the Bastards. And with that, that much closer to the end of our run. And it's so interesting because we've been talking about so many of these episodes now. And I feel like we're at a point where the episode structure as far as like where the season is going to go and like what point it's going to be at. Because we've just been so familiar with the 10-episode sequencing of which they've done for the last five seasons now. That it's almost hard to believe that an episode at this point in the show's run can surprise you and like I said like we both teased at the beginning of this episode this was an episode that was subplots the episode this is there is no kind of major plot arcs we get no north in this episode in any way we don't get any of Mirian, thank God. We don't get any of the Iron Islands. You know, we get a brief check-in with Bran north of the wall. But for the most part, this is handling kind of... And the next couple episodes, you're going to see them start to handle, like, a majority of the ancillary storylines. You know, we get King's Landing. We get Bran. We get Arya. Sorry. We get King's Landing. We get Sam. We get um, Arya. And we get brief check-ins with Bran Daenerys at the beginning and the end of the episode. So you can imagine my surprise. So not only is this episode, like, pretty good, this episode is actually pretty friggin' great. I don't know. What, what, what were your thoughts about this episode? <laughs> well, to be honest with you, uh, we actually, you know, are recording this podcast, like, a little bit uh, later than usual. So I, I watched the episode, getting prepared for when we were going to sit down and, and talk about this episode. A day has passed. Now we're recording this. And to be honest with you, I, I almost forgot everything. <laughs> Um, uh, so I'll, I'll be, you know, looking at the notes and obviously <laughs> my brain will, will spark with, with the scenes that happen. But, uh, I, I can't say that this is an in your face episode. It's definitely right. one of those episodes where, uh, if you blink, you're basically going to miss something. Yeah. It's but not it sets up a lot of cool things. The most important episode is the, is the thing you're hundred percent right, but it does. Yeah, the phrase in the blackfish are, are what I remember the most, you know, yes. like setting up that kind of Which like, is crazy because uh, again, they, they literally only set it up in this episode. That's it. Like we got a brief check in with the phrase in order to set it up completely. And it's so interesting kind of where, where that art goes. I'll get into that once we actually cover it on the episode, but yeah, it's so fascinating to me where this is an episode that I had kind of no expectations for going in. Like I said, what was so fascinating about this season is that it's one of those things where they spend the first half of the season setting everything up for the last two so hard. 
And then the next three episodes kind of just dive into subplot territory. You know, they wrap up Arya's arc. They reintroduce the phrase and the Blackfish, you know, with the whole Riverlands arc and all kind of those hanging leftovers from season six. Uh, you get, like I said, you spend a majority of this episode with Sam. You get the Hound back in the next episode. So it's like a lot of it is like weird subplots and like there's not as much stuff. So I, I find it really interesting. I don't know if that's really a matter of like kind of where they were at in the show's run and wanting to wrap up some of those ancillary subplots or just a matter of they knew that they they they, they didn't want to keep jerking the audience around and spinning their wheels with you know more useless bs in order to fill up the stuff so they realized that they didn't need to include every important storyline in this season because fun fact so this episode starts off with a brief check-in with bran uh you know right after the right after the attack on the weird tree after last week's episode yeah he's still uh, living in the past so to speak yeah he's uh... just dragging his ass around on the cart just being like oh my god i don't even know how they're still alive at that point i'm like wow they, they horror must have really held that door really really well because those white walkers are still far behind him i mean it's always confusing with the way that they're cutting in the way well, those those zombies definitely peeled off their pound of flesh from odor uh, yeah. <laughs> as he like held the door but um i'm wondering yeah. if hodor ended if hodor's corpse ended up making it to winterfell in the finale it's just that's just one of those things that like my brain goes to as far as like different like yeah that, that would have been the weirdest cameo shot uh, so ever in, in a long night but <laughs> i i don't think they uh chose that for a reason yeah um, to say the they, least. They, they decided to leave maybe like, well, we already tortured this guy enough floor. we already tortured this guy enough by literally having the majority of his role be to drag around this kid on a cart and say one word the entire time they literally made him the groot of the show and they finally got and they finally gave him like a pretty like awesome death they're like yeah we're not going to torture him and bring him back anymore yeah so you know listen we we pretty much the show has to leave bram where he left off and obviously he was stuck in sort of the past and trying to figure out you know who he is, you know, he's the new three-eyed raven. So there's a lot to learn in that role, and he's going to have to learn it on the fly because, you know, obviously his training, his Jedi training or whatever you want to call it, was cut short, literally, uh, by the Night King. Um, so the main thing I would say is that, you know, they're struggling. The zombies are right there on their tail. And all of a sudden, you know, this stranger on a horse with a, an awesome, like, you know, uh, what, what is it? Ball like, and what, chain? What, what, yeah, like a ball and chain, like a mace almost, but like they can light on fire yeah. from the inside. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, and, and if this was not done by HBO and was done by Marvel, you know, it would have been like flame on. You know, yeah. like it was basically he was able to flick a button and turn the flame on. You know, a little yeah. bizarre, but, you know, hey, he was able to do it. Um, so this stranger saves them and like, who are you and all this stuff. And Typical uh, reveal. Yeah, it turns out to be... Uh, Benjen. One lost Benjamin Stark, yeah, all the way yeah, back to we, season one. Did we get? We saw him in season one. So we saw him in season. Remember, he's the he's the one who brings John to the wall, and then he tells John gotcha, about gotcha. his ranging expedition that he's going north, and John wants to go with him, and he's like, "No, you can't go with me." Next thing you know, they report that he's missing. So it's so interesting because this is one of the few instances in this season, in the second half of the show, where this is what's what I like to call some of those loose overhanging threads. Because, like I said, what was so fascinating about season six going in is the fact that season six we pretty much wrapped up a majority of the main storylines of the show, but there were still a couple of loose overhanging storylines that they still had like kind of yet to bring in, and they realized that they probably could bring in case in point the ironborn the wrapping up of the riverlands arc and benjen is the next one but famously they changed around a decent amount and it, it messes a little bit with the chronology because i have this one idea of chronology in my head and betty often ways do the best that they can with it i think they do a much better job this season than they did the last season of how they handle it but there's still something that feels a little off where in the books I, again, I was not expected to do this at all this season, but in the books, the whole thing is that, and famously, the reason why Jojen Ree, who died all the way back in season four, is still alive in the books is because in the books, they are waylaid upon by a 
crew of White Walkers almost killed, and they are rescued by this guy before they've even gotten to the tree yet. And he introduces himself as Cold Hands, and the implication is that he's Benjamin Stark, you know, zombified, brought back, you know, almost killed by the White Walker, brought back by the Children of the Forest as this weird guardian figure in order to kind of help and assist them, but they never actually explicitly say that he is Benjamin. So he kind of remains as, like, kind of mysterious character that's kind of just hanging around the tree helping to guard it, you know? And... I will say that this is one of those instances where it literally just presents itself as what it is, which is, okay, this is just that one loose kind of leftover hanging thread that we had since season one. We're going to bring it back. And with and it's one thing because the problem is that, I mean, Benjamin Stark was never that big of a character to begin with. He was always kind of a plot device character. But I don't know. It kind of robs him of having, like, this really cool badass moment. And it's just like, oh, so I'm pretty much here to just, like, you know, yeah. be your guardian <laughs> and bring you to the wall. And yeah, then, dude, it, it was it, it really quick. They solved this. They're like, yeah. how? How is it possible? Yeah, Children of the Forest. They, they they made me just like the uh, made the White Walkers. It was like really yeah. quick. Like you know, like, oh, they, okay. they breeze through this dialogue scene, and it's like, oh, they made you with the dragon glass, and and you know, it was very interesting because you know, obviously, Benjamin coming back, he he's you know, I guess he's a new type of dead, you know, so to speak, or undead uh, in this case. Yeah, and and you know someone that has his wits about him, he knows you know that he needs to fight on the side He's of Bran. He's got his humanity. Yeah, exactly. And we don't really explore that in the show. Like, I don't remember how many. Uh, more episodes he's in well it's funny but... because it that's what exactly what happens is he's literally a plot device he's oh these are the only two things left that benjamin stark does in this show he brings brand to the wall we have a brief check-in with brand in the finale when brand uncovers the whole r plus l equals j thing and then he comes in in season seven to re to magically rescue john from the army of the dead when they're being swarmed upon by the lake after daenerys has rescued them by the dragon and sends john running away while he fends off the dead by himself and is like taken down and Oh yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I've, I haven't gotten there yet, you know, in the rewatch. So yeah, season seven's uh, yeah, gonna totally. be interesting to cover. I'm gonna be really interested, like how what what parts of that season are gonna age well for me and what parts are not gonna are not gonna age well because famously I'm a I'm Loki a big fan of season seven, like but in kind of like a guilty pleasure way. Like I understand that it's not good, but I just had so much fun watching season seven that like I don't I know. I think season seven is you know it's shorter, it's easier to binge. So I think there is a, a definitely a guilty pleasure aspect to it. Now my question is. Uh, they brought back the same actor, you know, to play yeah, Benjamin, Joseph right? Paul, famously, yeah. That's yeah, so that's one. that's crazy. Season one to season six, like, yeah. you know, they four, recasted what, four people five for five less. Years he hasn't been on the show, like, and they, that it still amazes me that they brought all these guys back. Some of whom, again, have not been on the show in years. Joseph Mall has not been on the show since season one. You know, um, even though he's literally only been in like one one episode each season previously, they brought David Bradley back. They bought the actor who played the Blackfish back. They brought I mean, they brought all these actors back who haven't been on the show in like two or three years. You know, I don't know. They could have definitely recasted and you know i know that i would have chose john johnny depp right you know you come back yeah or you know how about this you know mike myers a little awesome okay, powers okay, action now, is now, benjamin now, now, now we're getting too far to the possible no no we can't uh, recast this role no, okay no well no forget recasting the role just for, no, don't know mike myers just know mike myers in this role please <laughs> Yeah, but you know he could have done up the zombie makeup. Nah, and... nah, 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 nah. Just no, 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 no. I, I okay. instantly would have taken me out of it. So that's one. So yeah. So we got three. Like I said, three pretty big substantial arcs this episode. Before we kind of hit the moment with Daenerys, I'll save the moment with for Daenerys at the end. Because like I said, this is kind of like the other thing that's so interesting about this episode is it's kind of like a tr more traditionally structured episode in the sense of where like we have the we spend a lot of time in each of these three places and we cover a lot of ground with them. So do you want to hit Hornhill, King's Landing, or Bravos first? Let's just do King's Landing, man. We'll do King's Landing. Let's, Let's just get, get, it get out of the straight way. to so, it. 
like I said, so this is the big moment. We, we, you know, we famously, we didn't hit it last episode, and this is the big moment. You know, the, the Tyrell army has arrived. You know, everyone's getting ready to make their moves. The armies are getting ready to move on the Sparrows. But, you know, the, uh, what's called the High Sparrow is pulling, is playing his trickery, uh, continuing to. And, I mean... Dude, my favorite part about this scene is... It starts with like Jamie Lannister riding on the horse. He's looking down the street and here comes the Tyrell army. And he's just like looking up at the high sparrow, like you're going to get it now. No, and no, then- not even that. That wasn't even the best part. <laughs> when he was looking at Mace Tyrell, the way that he's riding, like the, like this dude who could like barely sit his horse, but he's still got this stance like a warrior, but he's got this re- giant, ridiculous looking feather coming out of his helmet. And he's just looking at him like, I got to work with this guy. That shit. Yeah, it's the whole thing is funny because Jamie goes up the stairs and he's talking with the high sparrow and he's like, yeah, you're going to get it every single one. He's like taunting him and he's not even part of the plan. Right. You know, like it's going to be the Terrell army going in there and securing Marjorie and, you know, uh, saving the day. And, uh, you know, it's just it's funny that here is Jamie basically saying, hey, in the name of King Tomlin, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and he's, you know, basically a, a sort of male peacock just showing his feathers um, right there and, and, you know, saying that we won. Uh, and then obviously that's not what they get. The High Sparrow has sort of, you know, uh, manufactured this moment where uh, Marjorie is not going to walk a walk of shame but instead has converted someone, which apparently I would love to this to have been like the rules, you know, like Cersei could have been, you know, could have been told this like, Hey, convert someone or uh, walk naked through the streets. But no, Marjorie's told this uh, (laughs) instead. So it's, it's one of those weird things about the storyline that's a, you know, it would have been great if the high sparrow kind of said, Hey, Cersei, convert your whole family and you know we'll we'll let you go and she refuses and does the walk instead uh that would set up this whole idea of marjorie convincing tomlin uh to be cool but uh regardless um you know uh elena basically says hey yeah. this is us losing she says it outright, and yeah. yeah she she knows what she's reading the tea leaves way before any of the others right. i guess jamie's kind of up you know, up on it, but... I mean, it becomes pretty obvious once Tommen comes out of the sept. You could just see the look on Jamie's face. But like, I'll, I'll say this about the sequence: it, it, I'll say that it's one of those things where, in hindsight, I don't necessarily know how well this sequence holds up. But I'll say this: I think it's a good payoff to how it's been set up. I think it's been very, very subtly set up as far as the High Sparrow playing his games with both Marjorie and Tommen, kind of engineering this moment, how he kind of played them and manipulated them into bringing the armies into the city in order to have this gigantic, you know, big show in order to show this like, okay, we have the power now, you know, where where he talks to, he brings out this entire army just with a few choice words and all. I think that that part was all well and good. The moment itself that was really tense, how they kind of have this giant build up. Do you think what's going to be like this moment of like crazy bloodshed? And then it turns out, no, it's not, you know, it's all kind of for naught. I, I think it is really interesting kind of the sequence and how it builds up. What I'm still kind of 50-50 on is the stuff that comes after it, where Tommen is kind of now completely being manipulated by the High Sparrow and all that. Jamie is trying to get him to see sense, and he's just not seeing it. Jamie is kind of banned from the King's Garden and is now being sent to deal with the Blackfish situation. All right, well, listen, the, the funniest part about this is Jamie goes up there and says, I'm doing this in the name of the King. And then, obviously, Tommen comes out and says, I'm part of the High Sparrow's gang. Right. And then they cut to the uh, Iron Throne. And they're sentencing Jamie for his punishment for 
defying the king. Right. And it's like, listen, dude, like you could have literally held a, a little bit of a meeting prior to right. this and, and said, hey, you know, uh, Uncle Jamie, you better not be there today yeah. or else, um, you know, and then show him defying you. Like, I, I don't think. You know, obviously, if you're the king, you're the king. You get well, to make we whatever also know it's common, and Tommen clearly hasn't but, thought this far ahead. So, yeah, but you know, even um, what you call it, uh, the uncle, right? You know, uh, Kevin, Ty- yeah. Tywin's brother. He's just sitting there, like, yeah, you defied the king. Like, yeah, wouldn't he? Kevin, Kevin Lannister lost a lot of brownie points with me between this season and last season. Between last season, just like going against Cersei for literally no reason, and then literally just swooping in and taking control when she is at her weakest, and then this season just openly defying them until he has no choice, and then kind of just blindly going along. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, Ke- Kevin Lannister deserved to die in that set. But but he he doesn't necessarily respect Jamie enough to you know right. Uh, uh, save him from this miscommunication because clearly Jamie, you know, was just there taunting. And so he was just on the scene. He wasn't really, you know, I guess circumstantially he wasn't taking part in it, but you know, uh, and also what did he do? He thought he was doing what Tomlin wanted. And clearly that was, you know, whatever. Um, So it just tells you how weak Tomlin is because, you know, people are trying to do something on his behalf. And then obviously, uh, he's decided to do something else and he doesn't know who to trust or who to talk to or anything. He doesn't really know how to be a king. Um, you know, and that's that's what's going to be uh, interesting going forward is like, oh, man, like, you know, way back in uh, what was it? Season four when Tywin's trying to manipulate Tommen, uh, you know, it's like. That's all his reign's going to be is, is yep. just people but, uh, trying to manipulate him. Who is going to be manipulating him in the moment? You know, Tywin for season four, Cersei for season five, and the High Sparrow for the rest of season six until his uh, ultimate demise, unfortunately, you know? Yeah, yeah. until... Uh, until, uh, until Just counting down. We're just counting down the days until the Winds of Winter. Just think about that as far as that goes. Then you can finally say goodbye to your favorite character ever, Tommen Baratheon of, you know... Yeah, hey, listen, like, I, I think his, his downfall was... Um, the fact that on his wedding night he was trying to break some kind of record because once Marjorie's gone, he did, you know, it's like he's, he's in this desperate thing where he's not going to have anything, any other relationship. He's not going to have, he has full power still, you know, he's still the King, but like, you know, it's clearly that he's love struck uh, by Marjorie. And that's really what's leading this is, just his obsession with her. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, so to speak, you know, and that le- just leads to his tragic ending. Yep. Like if, if he was a little bit older, you Fo- know, li- li- yes. literally was a, was a follower up until he followed them right off the cliff to his death. Exactly. But, you know, if he was a little bit older, a little more understanding of the world, he would probably be, you know, melancholia, you know, just like sort of like, moving the spoon around in the soup, but more or less he would probably mope around for a few years and then, uh, figure it out. You know, instead he just like, is too young, uh, thinks it's over and just, you know, does his thing at the end of the season. The only other um, thing that I could really say about this sequence is that I'll say that, um, Cersei's kind of plan for the first time in a couple seasons actually does make sense because she knows that because it's one of those things where she's starting to conceive of this plan and she understands now that she's like, look, Jamie, you tried it. We tried it your way. We tried to team up with everyone else. 
that didn't work. Now we got to take revenge on, and we just got to kill everybody all at once. And she knows that. And so she's starting to come up with this plan, but she also knows that Jamie is not going to be that well equipped for it. So she, so the idea of kind of having Jamie present presented as like the strong front for the Lannister army in this campaign that's going to take place eventually, you know, with with the phrase and everything that's going to take place over the next two episodes, I think is surprisingly ingenious as she like <coughs> as she kind of continues to concoct her plan in king's landing which of course brings us to like i said we got the phrase back you know we we have one very hilarious scene with, with walter Frey just complaining once again i will say that nobody <laughs> tells exposition better than david bradley as walter Frey, where he's kind of catching us up on all the shit that's happened over the course of the two seasons where it's like oh the blackfish did escape the red wedding it's like oh wow thanks for telling us now Two, three seasons later after it happened, you know, considering that he literally was the only one that seemingly didn't die, kind of recaps us as far as the Red Wedding, like we couldn't, like we didn't remember it, that it happened three weeks, you know, three seasons ago before they bring in Edmure Tully. Um, yeah, it, it's it's definitely a, a masterclass in a scene that shouldn't happen, but, you know, it kind of is necessary, yeah. right? Because it brings us back into the storyline uh, it, it kind of puts us in a different direction. It really helps set up what uh, Jamie's going to be doing, uh, as well as, you know, um, you know, obviously the Blackfish is supposed to be a very important ally for Sansa and right. John. And so here it is, like, you know, it's, it's basically going to serve to uh, put a little bit of a, a stranglehold on John and Sansa uh, leading into the the Battle of the Bastard, it's like, you know, they really didn't get the Blackfish. They really don't have that many houses that, you know, support them. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it, this is a necessary scene, uh, basically, to counteract uh, what's happening in the North with John and Sansa. Absolutely, yeah. So, with that being said, let's move on. Let's hit Hornhill next, because, again, this is a sequence where... It's, again, not necessarily, but you know what it is about this sequence that I love so much? It kind of reminds me of the Game of Thrones of old, where we would get those kind of random, seemingly one-off episodes, usually in the second half of the season, that weren't necessarily super plot-based, but they were more so character-based. I can think of, um, you know, A Man Without Honor in Season 2, Mockingbird in Season 7, episodes that would, like, have these, like, micro bits of plot in them, but were surprisingly centered on, like, some pretty big character development. And this is it for Sam, because for, again, a subplot where Sam is literally just on a journey south to the citadel i think they do some pretty damn good work here as far as you know introducing us to like sam's personal life you know this is the first time we're meeting sam's family kind of sam and gilly having to present this like kind of unified formalist front it's seeing sam for the first time like kind of conduct himself in a setting that's not the night's watch it's very fascinating as far as that goes and i think it plays out pitch perfectly from beginning to end you know a hundred percent so they they arrive at home and uh, Sam's mother and sister welcome them and you know here's Gilly and it's like hey you know they don't even know like if they're not married like they don't right. bring up their status of the relationship they just say hey here's baby Sam and like assumptions are made and they accept right. them right away it's pretty much like you're part of the family and you know it's like they even say like you know Gilly like I know you've been traveling but you gotta take a shower and, and get on uh one of these dresses I'll, I'll give you one of mine um so uh you know gilly and the sister are immediately becoming friends um you know from from the get-go like you know just just the the zania so to speak right to, to bring up greek mythology and the welcoming people into the home and treating them with respect you know that's 
that's what we see here from the mother and the daughter. And then, you know, we eventually get to dinner. <laughs> yes, and we get to dinner. And, and boy, oh man. boys, dinner. Well, first off, this is where we're introduced to Sam's father and brother, uh, Randall and Dick Antarly, who unfortunately beat their oh-so-tragic ends at the ends of Daenerys next season. You know, uh, Randall played by, um, you know, old-school British uh, British stage actor James Faulkner, who's great in everything that he's in. He popped up in a couple of nerd properties. And strangely enough, again, it, it's one of those strange things where it's like, oh, wow, this guy certainly wasn't a lot of stuff. This is another, This I think this is the famously the last part the last major character in the show who gets recast because so Sam's brother, Dickon Tarly, is portrayed by Tom Hopper of the Umbrella Academy and who was just most recently in the new Resident Evil season for season seven. But in this one sequence where he appears in, he's actually portrayed by Harry Potter alumni, Freddie Stroma, who actually would appear as Vigilante in James Gunn's, the, in James Gunn's Peacemaker that premiered earlier this season. And it's so baffling to me, like, once again, seeing, like, just how, like, kind of prissy and British he appears in most of the stuff that he's in. And then when he pops up in Peacemaker, he's like, gives one of the best performances I think I've ever seen in anything that is just kind of so overlooked, just kind of like how chameleonic and how like rubbery his face is, you know, like that, that guy really is like a sneakily good actor. I will say that, but this scene is just pitch perfect from start to finish. It just summarize. It summarizes Sam as a character completely where, He's just starting to get uncomfortable. He thinks he's finally achieved some sort of, you know, status. He's achieved something in the world. He's been a member of the Night's Watch. He's survived all of these different hardships. He's on his way south to the Citadel to become a maester, which is a position of great prominence. And all his dad can see in him is the same, you know, in his eyes, useless, you know, fat kid that is more, you know, into books than hunting and killing that he sent away in the first place, you know? And I think it's it's really awesome kind of seeing the context because it shows that Sam is still too scared to face up to his dad. I remember th this scene, like, hit me particularly hard when I watched it the first time, and it's one of those scenes that still hits me every time, and it almost shot, and it still so baffles me that it's in this sector of the show, considering the fact that we don't really get moments like these in this half of the show. But it's it's absolutely incredible to me because, of course, Gilly's going to step to his defense because she's like, who is this piece of shit talking to my man's like this? And <laughs> it leads to, again, listen, I, I think it's Listen, like it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a weird scene in the sense that, you know, you're, you're, you sent your son away. You, you said, I will kill you or you go join the Night's Watch. You're useless. Mm-hmm. And he comes back home and he's legitimately going to be trained to be like the second in command at Castle Black. And you still don't think that he's worth anything. That is crazy to me. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's absolutely like, nuts. okay. It's yes. You things, know, it's one of those things where I'm like, look, why? Like, like, like what? So, so you're just like, you're never going to like be. It, like proud of your son for anything you know it, yeah it, well it, it, uh, the main thing is yeah okay sure he's not going to be a warrior and he's not going to necessarily you know run into battle and kill 30 people and you know go and drink ale and you know uh go to the bordello and and do all that stuff right he's not gonna do that definition of what seemingly his father thinks is a man and he instead is going to become a predominant figure in the leadership of the Night's Watch. It's it, to me that's that's the weird thing is like you know this uh, his father you know is a warrior yes but he's also you know a leader he's the head of his family so the fact is I you know the fact that he has no respect for the fact that Sam is stepping up into a leadership position is uh crazy to me um you know it just shows you how much disdain that he has for his son that's beyond you know potentially logical reasoning 
Um, and that to me is what makes uh, the situation between the two of them, uh, you know, very like crazy. You know, 100%. Like but, and the one thing that I'll say about that too as well, and kind of like why I can get on board with this, because I know that shit happens in like real life. You know, that shit happens where it's like, you know, fathers with their sons, they can only see them in like one particular way. And no matter how hard they try, you know, if it's like, they, they, you know, they just, they, they the, the son just, whatever, for whatever reason, just cannot line up with the father's vision of what they wanted for him, you know? And I think it's also a big thing too, where everything seemingly that, um, what's it called, that Randall Tarley wanted in his son, he got in his second son, Dickon Tarley, but it's like he always wanted that for his older brother, Sam, and it probably drove a wedge between the two brothers growing up as well, where the two brothers probably tried to get along, but were on such different walks of life that they probably never had any, any interaction, which is why Sam probably had, like, only some interaction with his sister growing up, you know? Like I said, it's, it's, yeah. an, it's an well, amazingly the, the, well-done scene. The funny thing at this is that the Sam and the brother are, like, chatting. Like, yeah, yeah, they're getting along oh, the, the most This part. is last week's hunt, you know? We, yeah. we still haven't caught this week's, you know? We're we're going around the perimeter. Well, yeah, because Sam's in like... a much different place than he was, you know, when he probably first left Hornhill. He probably first, when he first left Hornhill, he probably had no idea even how to... He knew how to have a discussion with his brother, and now he's like, "Yeah, you know, I've again." It's like to some extent, yes, he's still obviously scared, terrified of his father. But um, like I said, like Gilly said, he killed a White Walker, he killed a Thend. Like he's faced down things that very, very few men in their entire lifetimes ever will, you know. And I think that, yeah. and I think that's a nice subtle thing is like when Gilly says, "Oh, he killed a Night Walker." They're like, oh, there's no such thing, you know. Like, I love, you, I love how Gilly says those things. Basically, says, yes, your son is this killer that you want him to be, and the only thing that Tarly can say is <laughs> north of the wall. That's the only thing. He yeah, can exactly. But I understand that because I'm like, that is the same shit that like somebody like my dad would do, where I tell him all these different things that happened, and he'll only focus on that one detail that he didn't yeah. like. You know, well, the one thing I I'm just curious, how far south is Hornhill? Like. Pretty Where far exactly? south. It, it, it's so basically, like, if you think of Westeros, like, North and South America, right? Like, kind of the way, basically, think of yeah. the entirety of North America as being the North. You know, think of, like, the borderline between U.S. and Canada is where the wall is, and Canada and everything north of that is north of the wall. Then you get, like, to around, like, Mexico area. That would be probably around, like, where the neck is. And then once you get south there, so basically, again, thinking of this geographically, so you got the well, Erie. The, the twins would be Panama, but, well, like, no, uh, no, no, not uh, even so. Erie would be. What do you mean? That's the, the smallest point, right? You got the Erie Canal, or that, not the uh, Panama Canal. Jeez. The Panama Canal, no, that wouldn't be the twins, because the twins is further down south, because, so basically, on the western side of the continent, you have the Riverlands stretching down, then you have the, then you have the Westerlands, which are, you know, where the Lannisters reside, all that, then the islands off to the side there, you know, there would be a series of islands there, that would be the Iron Islands, then on the eastern side of the continent, you got the Vale of the up in the top north corner then you have the stormlands coming down south king's landing is kind of cushioned in between the two and then in the dead center in the dead center of the continent is the um what's it called is the reach which is high garden you know that's the tyrells and horn hill is somewhere in there because the horn hill and the tarleys i believe are the second richest family in that region after the tyrells Gotcha. So uh, the main thing is, and then the, and then Dorne and, and the Martells are all the way down south at the very bottom of the continent. There's like an extra like shelf that stretches out. Yeah. the The main thing is for sure that they are down there. They're they're not in the north. They're not bordering the wall. Right. Um, so again, it's one of those things where this irrational uh, hatred for the wildlings. Uh, like what it, did a wildling just like migrate so far south? Yeah, it's and, like, they just built in prejudice, you know. Like like I said, obviously the northerners of Orwell was gonna have a different relationship with the wildlings than the southerners do because the northern the northerners like have active conflict with the wildlings. But like, 
who knows when the hell yeah but the north the north would have conflicts with them so what the north just built the north men take a vacation in horn hill (laughs) and they're they're drinking at a bar and they're just like oh yeah those wildlings probably just building prejudice because like i said the the majority of the southerners are descended from the andals which are the second race of men that came to westeros in between the first men of the targaryens and like i said the first men the majority of the northerners and the wildlings are all descended from the first men which is why the northerners usually have some kinship with the wildlings at least the ones that are descended from the north men and but the almost all the majority of the southerners um are descended from the andals which are the second, with the exception of the Dornish, which were the second race of men that came over. So not only did they not have know, any it, sort of common lineage with the wildlings, it, it's it's just built in prejudice. Just after hearing the, the main about th- the main thing is, yeah, well, he would have to read a book from a maester or something. But anyway, yeah, the, the fact is, uh, who he doesn't believe in reading books apparently, um, according to this scene. Right. Uh, I, you know, I think the thing is, like this scene would have been a little bit better if he was skeptical about Gilly from the start of the dinner. Right. Like, oh, you're just some northerner that my son's hooked up with you and blah, 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 blah. Um, because then it would make sense that, you know, oh, she's a wildling. She's even further north. I've heard stories, you know, like th- this is crazy. Like, right. N- then he could be super offended. Um, otherwise, like, you know, I, this, I don't know. He just hates the wildlings because it's part of the uh, tension between Sam and his father. Um, so I think that's kind of a little bit weird. Uh, I would like to have seen, you know, a little more um, uh, skepticism about who Gilly is um, to begin with. You know, I mean, it was the stranger it was already at my there. table. That, that's just part of like keeping him silent for a majority of the scene, you know. But it's one of those things where you can tell he yeah, just, yeah. he's never got his eye off of them. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm picking at uh, some of the details, and it, it just uh, uh, you know seems like it could have been a little more. Uh, you know, uh, detail oriented, uh, in how he, he really act. Cause he, he just explodes like, Oh, how dare, you know, you bring a wildling into my house. And I'm just, you know, um, wondering why out of all the things in the world, that's the biggest thing that you hate. Right. Um, is there a backstory? Like he went and visited the Starks when he was, you know, younger and like his, you know, brother got killed by a wildling on some sort of raid right you know well, like, i mean yeah like, well i mean you know his wife did say that they met with the umbers at one point so yeah so i'm i'm just you know i think it would be cool if there was a little more inherent backstory into his hatred uh instead of just him hating you know it's i, I guess it's possible i guess we don't get to see that backstory but you know in terms of like a story to to really you know just amp it up a little bit give more depth to a character uh, it would have been nice to have that, you know, other than he's just, he's a hard man. Uh, and that's all the characterization we really get from Sam's father. And it's enough because Sam doesn't want to leave Gilly with that, uh, you know, uh, type of person, uh, basically wants to hurt his father. So he takes the Valyrian sword, um, you know, and he also thinks it's going to be helpful in the long run when he reunites with John. And so he takes that sword and he leaves, uh, Hornhill. In the middle right. of the night. Indeed. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of sporadic. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It's kind of like his one last act of rebellion. And I'm like, okay, you know, you go, Sam. You know, the fact that he takes the Valyrian steel sword. Understandably, so it's probably pretty smart considering that, you know, his father di- his father and brother both die in the next season. Yeah. So it, it's, pro- it's probably his first re- act of rebellion, right? Because his right. father... Uh, threatened to kill him and unless he joined the Night's Watch right. and he True. went along True. with that plan the whole time. Yeah. So this is the first time that he's actually um, he's actually proving himself, you know, to be a man 
in the sense of his father's eyes by, you know, doing this act of rebellion, doing what is necessary, um, you know, and, and really, um, not being concerned about, you know, the anger of his father. So, uh, I think the character of who Sam was and who he is now, this scene kind of comes full circle and really shows us the growth, you know, before, uh, he was shut down, uh, really just afraid, probably would have died in season one had it not been for John and his advice, uh, and his friendship over the years. And the fact is like Sam now has a backbone, uh, he's willing to do like the unthinkable, um, you know, Gilly's there the whole time and she's like, Oh, won't he, you know, come for it. And Sam just responds, I'd like to see him try, you know, <laughs> or something yeah. similar to that effect. And then it um, turns out he apparently doesn't care about that sort as much as he thought because he never said any raiding parties for it, never suspects where it is, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe he just, uh, never really looked at the mantle again. Who maybe knows? he, maybe he was so angry that a wildling was in that dining room that he never ate there again. Maybe. Who knows? That would be something crazy. But anyway, <laughs> let's cut to Bravos. And I'm not going to lie. Right now, this is Apex Aria for me. Like, Aria. So I was talking about how John coming back to life and carrying out his last act as Lord Commander was kind of Apex John, right? We're not quite to the point of Apex brand yet, but we're getting there. Um, if not having already passed. And this is Apex Aria for me. You know, like Sansa to me is the only character of the last four remaining alive Starks after this season that is kind of still compelling in any way, shape, or form. Because Aria to me, this is the last time that she's even remotely humane. It's the it's kind of the final time of her like reaffirming her humanity and reaffirming her faith and her belief in others. And it's also like the last time that she's actually able to form a genuine human connection to someone. And it's awesome. Like they kind of finish up the arc of the play in a strange way, kind of finish recapping like the events of the first four seasons. It's still awesome to see how how Arya reacts to it differently than the last couple of seasons. And this is the moment. She officially makes up her mind and says, fuck the faceless man. I'm not going to be some ruthless bounty hunter. I'm not going to yeah. be that person that just <laughs> kills willy-nilly. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because she's in the back and she's talking with the, uh, was it Lady Grey? Lady Crane, yeah. Crane, Crane. Um, so the the fact is, uh, you know, oh, I've seen you watch this play. Did you pay? And it's like, nah, I didn't, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she's wondering why you, you're watching. She's suspicious. Why are you watching this play so many times? And they strike up a conversation. Um, and, you know, I forget how it works out, but, like, there's a moment for Arya to, to really poison her, her rum, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess she drops the vial. No, she doesn't. That's not what happens at all. What happens so it was is, explained, is Arya, happens. Leaves, I, so Arya leaves the tent. Lady Crane is in the conversation with the other actors. Richard E. Grant starts giving her like a little bit of, you know, starts giving her an earful because she's suggesting that she could, you know, she could act, that she could, you know, add a little bit more dimension to the character, you know. And, um, you know, Richard E. Grant starts giving her an earful saying, oh, I'm the only one whose opinion really matters. You know, you don't get an opinion. You don't get a voice. Again, kind of a little bit of one of those like really weird, like, OK, authors trying to insert their gripes of not being taken seriously as true artists into the media that they're making. And she's about to drink the rum when Arya comes in, knocks it out of her hands and straight up points at the girl who hired the faceless men who wants to take her spot. And is like, careful of that one. She wants to see you dead, you know, before just straight up leaving. And the waif has okay. apparently been there the entire time <laughs> keeping an eye on her. The waif guy, and then, like I said, this is what just solidifies it. I'm like, yeah, the waif is the worst character ever. Where she just goes at the jacket and is like, she, you know, she didn't do it. And jacket is like, oh, don't make her suffer. And she's like, she nods. And I'm like, what 
part of you believes that this character is going to not let her suffer in any way, shape, or form. And Arya goes, she recovers Needle from the hiding spot where she left it in season, you know, at the beginning of season five. Yeah, I, I just thought it was awkward. I must have blinked at the uh, slapping of the realm. But the fact that I mean, everyone's... it's an awkward cut for sure. It kind of comes yeah, out of nowhere. Everyone, everyone is just like looking at her, and I'm just thinking like, Arya just tried to kill her, and like I think they all know that that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like like yeah. that's what, or at least like, that's wait, what they're thinking. Your, it's like way to out yourself right there, you know? Yeah, exactly. And and then you know she just goes like a boss. She's like, be careful of that one. She yeah. wants you dead. And it's pretty like, awesome. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you, the person that just slapped the rum out of my hand, <laughs> is the one that wants me dead. Like, you know, I, it's obviously we follow Arya. We get the shot of the waif who is obviously following her. But uh, I'm just curious what, you know, Lady Crane and the rest of the actors think. It's yeah. like, and I don't think it's the, uh, you know, the young actress that played Lady Sansa is uh, the killer. I think it's like, did you know, it's it's like is Ashton Kutcher going to come out of the curtain and say we're punked? You know, like I think they're thinking something totally different, uh, and I don't know if that warning. Uh, and I guess we'll never really find out because yeah. the characters kind of end at this point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know if they would actually believe some random, you know, girl that shows up and slaps rum out of your hand. Yeah. Um. You know, hey. You never look, know. Look, look yeah. we got we got the very sloppy resolution of this arc over the next two episodes. That is like forget forget Game of Thrones. It kind of brings it back. It's kind of reminiscent of like yeah, again this it's Dorn from season five. It's Mirin from this season. It's uh, it's Yara's attack on the Dreadfort in season four. It's one of those just so ridiculously stupid moments that is so out of place. That it's like why is this even here between the next two episodes where Arya is flaunting herself around, just throwing around bags of gold to pay people to take her back to Westeros, and then get stabbed rightfully so by the wave. And then in the following episode is, you know, the wave kills Lady Crane in order to try and get to her while she's being, you know, nursed back to health. And it, it, and Arya takes her on this parkour sequence. The, the less said about that, the better. We'll cover that in the next two episodes. When I'm yeah, yeah. when of, we get to the parkour sequence, we'll have a lot of things to say about the, it. The next, two season, the next two episodes is where kind of Bravos just loses me completely. But like I said, this is the, this is the last one where Bravos is, like, remotely interesting. So let's bring it to the last sequence where, man, Daenerys, I mean, I'm so happy that we didn't have to suffer. It, 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 like, it elated me to no end that we did not have to suffer through Meereen in this episode. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we don't get any of Meereen either in the next episode, which I'm like, thank fucking God. But... So you get this last kind of tied up sequence here with Daenerys leading the Dothraki where she kind of just leaves them standing in that valley for God only knows how long. They don't really say how long they're waiting for. The Dothraki are just like kind of sitting there just being like, okay, did we just get let out of Vice Dothraki for no reason? And it's so confusing because this sequence is so, so simultaneously awesome but so unnecessary and repetitive if it's like, okay, we just, we need to, it felt like, okay, we needed to put a scene with Daenerys in here where it's like, okay, she comes in on them with the, with the dragon and asks them to like come with her to conquer the world and all that. And it's like, okay, so she's officially decided to leave Meereen. So th this is like our official like decision making. She's made the decision to finally leave Meereen and go back to Westeros with Dario kind of telling her that she's a conqueror. And the first thing that she does is just, you know, convince the Dothraki to come with her. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they were already willing to do anything that she wanted to do after, you know, she literally murdered all the cows and then emerged from the fire again. But I don't know. What, what's your take on this sequence? No, 100%. It was it was definitely like a rehash of the, you know, the, the main house there uh, being burned down and her emerging and everybody kneeling. Uh, this was the round two of that. So I guess... They're all riding that high of like, yeah, we're, we're committed to her. Uh, and then when they see the dragon, they're, you know, it's just they're really amped. 
Um, yeah, I don't know if it really adds anything to it. I think it's that really subtle hint of like when we get back to Marine, uh, we're packing our bags, we're we're going on our real mission. Finally, like we got the Dothraki, we got the Unsullied. We just got to figure out the ship situation, which is another call out to uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, Iron Isles, right? Because right. there's two groups of Iron Isles that are going to have ships. The ones that have the small lot of ships now that are sailing on the sea and the ones that are chopping down the trees and spinning the silk to make the new ships that are going to, uh, you know, rule the world, so to speak. And, um, you know, so I guess it's setting up a storyline to happen in, in the future episodes. Um you know, so there there is a little subtlety in this sequence, but you know, at the end of the day, it's it's sort of just a quick, hey, Daenerys is in this episode, uh, then we out. You know, it, yep. it's you know, it's quick. It's, not much we, happens. It's, it's a fun. nice fiery speech. Yeah, you know, we get the Dothraki, dragon back. It's awesome. Yeah, Dothraki meet dragon. Uh, I guess they dropped the whole idea that the dragon's going to misbehave. It's just all yeah, of a sudden. Yeah, that's just done with. They're, they're just yeah. immediately past our adolescent phase. The, the dragon's like, oh, you got some Dothraki? I'm down. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I'm totally not going to roast any of these guys. Exactly. So uh, I don't know why that's the case. You know, maybe the, the dragon kind of likes horse riders. I, yeah. I, I don't get it. I think this is definitely the moment where kind of like the obsession with the dragon started to begin because like you get the dragons, obviously they're on full force in Battle of the Bastards and then at the end of episode 10 and then you get them like, they're damn near every episode for the next two seasons. You know, they're really trying to show up. They're like, yeah, these dragons are pretty much all we got left. So we got to make damn good use of them. You know, maybe it's because she hadn't like, you know, set a house on fire and, uh, Who knows? you know, emerged from it in way too long. Now, the dragons just really didn't believe she was their mother, and now that she's done that, uh, done that in a big fashion, uh, the dragons are like, "Yeah, I remember you." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so she just has to set a house on fire every once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. So that's pretty much it. That's our recap and review of season six, episode six, "Blood of My Blood." Like I said, subplots of the episode. We got about two more episodes of subplots. Yeah, the subplots, of my subplots, man. Subplots upon subplots upon subplots. So many subplots for these next two for these next two episodes but like i said it is all worth it for once we get to the one-two punch of battle of the bastards and winds of winter pat thank you so much for co-hosting with me once again this is a little bit of a shorter episode but like i said it was subplots upon subplots so where can the good people follow you on the interwebs hey listen you can find me at patrick w huber on instagram i'm posting there every once in a while uh, you can see sort of, you know, some of the production stuff I do, some of the photos I take, just random stuff that I'm uh, putting out there on the social media. Awesome. Please be sure to go follow him with everything. Follow myself at Movie Nerd Reviews. Be sure to follow Chris at Christian Ivanko. Follow the official Talking TV podcast across all platforms. Subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch. And be sure to keep tuned for brand new episodes of Talking Thrones and the Talking TV podcast uploaded on Mondays and Fridays every single week throughout the year on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's it. Take care. We'll see you guys next week. And as always, 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next time.